Hi guys and welcome. This is Jen Gata Siciliano, artist, memoir writer, bipolar psychiatric survivor, and your host of Not As Crazy As You Think podcast, the place that offers an alternative perspective on mental illness, highlighting creativity, non-conventional healing, and breaking on through to the other side. If you are ready for a new narrative on the mental realm that celebrates crazy and cool without penalty, then Not As Crazy As You Think is for you. Hello, this is Jen Gata Siciliano, your host of Not As Crazy As You Think podcast. Thank you for joining me once again. So there's a new surge of mental health consumers, as we know. The most recent study published in the Lancet Psychiatry Journal shares that one in three COVID-19 survivors received a psychiatric diagnosis within six months of infection, and the most common were anxiety disorders, mood disorders, substance misuse disorders, and insomnia. See, most people aren't aware that psychiatric diagnoses are based on observation of behavior alone or reported behavior and not biological testing. But this widespread accepted narrative that claims mental illness, or the latest term, neuropsychiatric disorder, derives from biological influences and defective genes. Earlier on in the outbreak, however, the CDC acknowledged on its website that causes for mental illness were environmental, resulting from either stress, overwhelm, or fear ignited by the pandemic. Depression resulting from loss of a job or isolation from lockdown or anxiety about one's own health or health of a loved one. Environment affecting mental health over genetics in real time proved itself without a doubt this past COVID year. In response to the rising mental health crisis, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pushed for $5 billion to be included for mental health issues in the recently passed American Relief Bill. The effort to assist those who are suffering is commendable, but because the experts in the field of mental health are enmeshed in psychiatry's biomedical model, all that money will go to support pharmacological treatments. With more who qualify for a chronic psychiatric diagnosis, new lifelong consumers are created for the pharmaceutical industry, and now additionally the growing biotech industry, as gene therapy is the latest proposed treatment for bipolars and schizophrenics. This past week, I read an article that was rather zealous in its assertion that seeking natural alternatives to heal mental illness outside of the biomedical model was ridiculous. And this was from a bipolar chick. Well, I say you are wrong. It is imperialist thinking. The brainwash is harder to see in America and the Western white world. It's much clearer when you see the push for psychiatry's biomedical model upon the rest of the world. In 2018, the Lancet Commission on Global Mental Health and Sustainable Development published a report that many people in the mental health field found troubling especially in many poor countries. The report makes great efforts to stress the importance of the merging of evidence and scientific disciplines on the nature and causes of mental health problems to be at the forefront to what this call to action should involve. In the opening section of the report, it states that a historic opportunity exists to reframe the global mental health agenda in the context of the broad conceptualization of mental health and disorder envisioned in the SDGs, or the Sustainable Development Goals. 
Remember, they did this through worldwide imperialism, with the goal of fixing the world through forcing everyone to think the same way and submit to their conceptualization of everything. The only acceptable Eurocentric view of religion, social structure, and education, while they shit on everyone else's cultural belief systems. Now, the past is repeating itself once again through psychiatry, but through the false filter that they actually care about mental health. During the same week it was published, on October 9th and 10th, 2018, on World Mental Health Day, the UK government hosted a global mental health ministerial summit where the Lancet report was presented. I assume with the intention of threatening the Royal Majesty's former colonialist nations to bend, once again, to the way they view the world and all things in it, especially matters of the mind. In response to the summit and report, a band of mental health activists and service users organized an open letter with detailed concerns, which attracted the support of policymakers, psychologists, psychiatrists, and researchers internationally. Jill Mill Breckenridge of the Bohr Foundation, based in New Delhi, India, which is a mental health advocacy group that aims to provide mental health choices outside the biomedical model, is also a poet who uses poetry in her therapy. She said, I think people need time to be free, to observe, to paint, to think. And if everyone is just producing, it's a very big problem. There would be no artists and poets and thinkers. She felt great concern about this new global mental health movement taking place, and on October 20th, 2018, she sat with the Man in America podcast to discuss it. Her foundation pushes to eradicate stigma around mental illness, and they create inclusive spaces for mental health through projects, such as using artistic mediums like poetry and creative nonfiction for therapeutic purposes. She saw the danger in applying Western approaches as a blanket answer to India's problems in mental health. She refers to that power imbalance with the white coats, or doctors, acting like God sitting from above. In response to the summit, she describes there was a covert, almost sinister lack of effort to involve service users with lived experience or mental health advocates or activists or even academics. Largely, just the people from the global mental health movement were there. Breckenridge believes in looking beyond the medication approach, which only supports the biomedical model. Meds can be short-term, she said, but not for life. And this treatment approach implies that something is not working and has to be fixed. It sees through the lens of normal and not normal, and those abnormal are a burden to society. She had trouble with the UK positioning themselves as a global mental health champion because it's well known that they have their own mental health service problems and issues of discrimination and human rights abuses. Fix what's broken with your system at home before you recreate it worldwide. Perhaps there is a reason people are sad or depressed, she said. Maybe it's the human condition. Countries like India, for instance, have their own ancient ways of healing, herbal, faith healing, which allows for community involvement and support, which still have value in India. But they are invalidated by the Western approach. India has real economic and social problems. Do people have enough food to eat? Do they have jobs? A trauma-informed approach asks, why are people in distress? 
What is going on with the person? Perhaps they are a refugee, or living in war, or a victim of rape, or childhood sexual abuse. She reminds the listener that people in India have much bigger problems to overcome. There is a huge share of the population living below the poverty line, and suicides of farmers are a big problem when land does not yield crops because they cannot feed their families. Instead of lacing them up on drugs, getting to the source would actually help. Train them in cattle farming or something else. It's a way of passing the buck, she said, and ignoring what is causing distress. Giving drugs will not make the land produce food. Jill Mill asserted that in response to the global mental health movement, there is a lot of anger on the ground. The Lancet report is filled with terms like the burden of disease on society. The language has to change, she said. Mm, But this language will not change because it is the foundation upon which their philosophy works. Their science is based on their drugs, providing the solution. Big Pharma funds these studies that support a biomedical position as their evidence-based research can sell their drugs. If someone funded studies to show the success in other therapies with the kind of money or gain of Big Pharma, then drugs would be a thing of the past. But we still want to buy in. Intervention and treatment to the person's biology is useless long-term when people are in distress reacting to a real thing in their environment. Mental health through an illness lens is only looking at the person suffering and not fixing anything in society, and it is based on a capitalist model obsessed with productivity. We saw this without a doubt play itself out, and the rate of mental illness now exploding in the U.S. and worldwide is being blamed on biological associations related to contacting the COVID illness. Again, research funded by pharmaceutical companies standing in the aisles ready to jump in and save. And no focus is on the larger environmental stressors created by the pandemic itself and also the hidden ills in our society which were revealed due to the pandemic. I know their biological claims to mental illness to be completely off target because I had a life-threatening trauma in a third-world country just days before I received a life sentence of their bipolar DSM label that forced psychiatry from that moment forward to rule over my every waking moment. My environmental stressor was real and overwhelming. I think you might agree if you stick around to listen to Chapter 5 of my book. Chapter 5. A Sentence to Bear. Captain, there's something wrong with the Matrix on this timeline. Jen Gaeta's been in India just a couple of days, and they're already near Class 3 destruction, said Chief Number 1. She knows too much. She's learning through her unique bipolar vision about the truth no one can see. Time coordinates? Asked Captain Spock. 1994, her time. What's the order? We only have 30 seconds in a 3D reality with XY access and binary code capabilities. Send her the dead white man virus, fly her home here to visit, and then land her in the Queen's dungeon. But make sure she catches the Hitler glitch. 
On my way to Anissa's hotel, I peered outside the back seat window with my forehead pressed against the glass and took in the awfulness of India's poverty. A deep compassion welled within me for the destitute untouchables as hot tears streamed down my cheeks. These poor souls who only seem to own a food bowl of their own and a loincloth around their waists were below the class that lived in slums. These people were barely alive. How fortuitous an edge in life most of us Americans inherit, and how completely we took it for granted as if it was a God-given birthright. Before this trip, I was completely ignorant of this reality here, and now I could not bear its truth. With great sorrow, I now understood that for many others, in fact a majority of people on earth, the nuisance of life offered a foul existence. A real torture and imprisonment existed elsewhere, and indeed, it was an oppressive world. The cruelty of their position in life only affirmed to me that either God was non-existent, disinterested in his creation, or that Jesus' promise that the meek do inherit the earth in life after death was true, because it was the only fair karma for such punishment. When I met up with Anissa in her room back at the Grand Western Regional Hotel, frantically I told her the story detail for detail as she remained solemn during my speech with a serious gaze. At the end of my account, she said resolutely, You need to leave that house immediately. She wants you out and somehow you crossed cultural lines. It's not safe for you to be there at this point. It was as I had expected. I tried to mask my panic but I needed to stay composed if I was to rely on the good graces of this family to help get me settled on a new path. But the reality was setting in. I was completely alone in a foreign, third-world country with not a soul I could trust except Anissa, and I was not feeling well at all. My belly flip-flops that had begun the night before were substantially worsening. Then, to my utter dismay, as Anissa took my hand into hers, she revealed gently to me, my family and I are leaving today at 2 p.m. A despondency so grave, the kind that only soldiers facing death might know, set into my already desperate state. I had no idea their departure was so soon. Go get your things, meet us back at the hotel, and we will set you up with the cab driver we had during our stay, she said. He can be trusted. Be very careful here with whom you do trust and ask a lot of questions. Good thing many of the people you will be dealing with speak English, so stay calm. Both she and her parents knew the dangers of being alone in such a chaotic place, and their hearts felt for me, and I so needed that sympathy. The Nayar driver and I returned to the house so that I could collect my things and then meet Anissa back at her hotel. Summit was in the living room as I entered. Summit, I said, I'm leaving. Why? He saw that I was distraught. What happened? Your mother demanded I leave the house. He stood mute, narrowed his eyes, and for a few still moments he stared at me suspiciously. Are you sure you didn't misunderstand my mother? She would never have asked you to leave. She just would not do that. Had he not heard the commotion in the morning? She demanded at summit, I'm not lying to you. I'm just going to get my things and find another place to stay. I don't believe you, he said resolutely. 
jabbing my weakened heart. As my Christ story was symbolically unfolding, he was without a doubt my Judas. In a barking cough, I cried, Fine! Don't believe me! Summit stared at me, frozen, not knowing what to say or do. I collapsed into the antique wing chair, positioned perfectly over the corner of the living room Persian rug. I had so admired the aura of sensible, refined taste in this home, and now it represented the chokehold of high society snobbery and coldness. Summit was not to be trusted in matters of a vulnerable heart. I had to remain careful because I knew I was waiting in precarious territory. But my instability betrayed me. With an inconsolable whimper, I confessed, I feel so sad here in India. I am surrounded by such oppression. I I just can't contain myself. I need to get out of here. I really want to go home. Summit dismissed my statement with contempt. Oh, please. India is not oppressive. What are you talking about? Why are you crying? Summit, I'm also getting sick. I have severe abdominal cramps. I think I may have to shorten the length of my trip. Summit looked at me blankly, but seemed to muster a tiny globule of pity for me. He went off to his room, returned with a copy of my Fodor's traveling guide that we had reviewed in vain a few nights earlier, handed it to me, and with emptiness said, Here, good luck. I focused on packing with the determined purpose to leave that house as soon as humanly possible before the furor of Mrs. Nayar reared its beastly head again. It just doesn't make sense, I said to myself. Pack your bags and get out of here, Jen. You're not safe here. Move as quickly as you can. Move quicker. Summit stared at me quietly with a probing gaze as I continued organizing my belongings. Then, as the Nayar driver waited to escort me one last time to the Grand Western Regional Hotel, Summit walked me to the car in silence. He stood at the edge of his driveway as I loaded the car and got in. Bye, Summit. He silently waved goodbye with an expression I had never seen him wear before. It was the countenance of a suffering soul, a boy trapped inside a man's body, aware that his world was in the wrong somehow, but not knowing how to find his own integrity within it. In his eyes, I saw regret, sadness, and envy, and then I went on my way, certain that I would never see or hear from Summit again. I was moving on, but to where, I had no idea, except that somewhere in the equation were my aching guts. Anissa was soon to board her plane to Johannesburg, but first she wanted to travel to one last stop at a local man's home, whom she mentioned was a spiritual guide and gifted mathematician. Staying by her side assured me my safety and my sanity. Perhaps this intriguing detour might provide me distraction from my steadily worsening cramps. Akaria Samant was a humble man who lived in a modest abode, and although he tread lightly upon the ground he walked, weak he was not, for wrapped in his posture was a depth of character that had long been shaped by the gushing waters of poverty, little opportunity, and limited resources. His dwelling was made of what looked like hardened clay and was the color of serene white. There were only two rooms, 
a backspace existed as a food preparation area and where we sat was sanctioned for communing and later for family sleep. I did not see a lavatory. After some light chit-chat and introductions, Anissa, in a most respectful manner, began to ask Akaria questions about all things metaphysical. They spoke about astrology, free will, infinities, and meditation. She then interviewed him on the comparative analysis of geometric principles and sacred geometry and the esoteric connection to the divine through mystical Hinduism. The man answered every question carefully and thoughtfully with an authoritative tone. He was clearly connected to something larger than himself and acted as a conduit to that all-knowing energy. With every one of her questions, he revealed himself further as a messenger of something honest and real. He knew something and was willing to share it gently and respectfully. I was moved by his earnest faith, for he had found something so precious that he would forever be indebted to the Creator who bestowed this blessing upon him. I saw the moments passing one by one, with my mind so unfocused I could barely appear courteous enough to fix my gaze upon the conversation. My thoughts ran in circles around the only present topic I cared about, my wretchedly sore, rumbling stomach and aching intestines. I feebly tried to take a sip of Akaria's offering of goat's milk and tea, but nausea was creeping in, and I had to refuse it. With the intensity of my pain climbing and my emotions spiraling downward, I thought how pitiful was the life of an untouchable, who is imprisoned and unjustly cursed by his karma, to live in hell on earth through agony and starvation, the horror. But what could I do? Akaria mentioned that he was doing a bit of research and was unable to attain any electronic equipment, preferably a handheld tape recorder that would help him greatly in a book he was hoping to write. Coincidentally, I happened to have one with me, and as I was getting increasingly sick with every passing minute, I knew I wouldn't have the head to record my travel journal anyway. I had not spoken one word into the microphone yet. I decided to pass it to Akaria as a gift, and his response surprised and moved me. His profuse thanks for my thoughtfulness and generosity and goodness and virtue was almost embarrassing, and yet I wasn't embarrassed for him, for he was so dear in his genuine gratefulness, but rather for my own disgusting attitude that had grown from privilege. Giving this impossible-to-attain luxury item to Karya was for me a meager gesture. It took no forethought, no outstanding effort, no special labor whatsoever, but in his world, it was everything. I felt ashamed of myself for my previous absent compassion for others less fortunate. Here was a man who had nothing, and yet he became a respected and learned man in his community committed to a personal philosophy that could help others by spiritually uplifting them. When Anissa finished her interview, she thanked Akaria and his wife for sharing their time. We really should be going. Thank you for all your hospitality. It was such a pleasure, such a pleasure. Thank you for sharing with me your thoughts and sitting in my home. It is a true honor, he responded. He walked us to the doorless entrance to his home with prayer hands and several bows, and I thought him to be the kindest man I had met so far in India. 
We picked up Anissa's parents from the hotel, and before the family departed for the airport, we had stopped at an English fast food burger joint, McDonald's equivalent. It stood out like a sore western thumb in the middle of all the street market food on curry sticks. Anissa's family was so kind to buy me a cup of chicken soup, assuring me that I would be okay with the concerned intonation that only resonates in the voices of familial ties. But as I tried to ingest some broth, my stomach repelled even the smallest teaspoonful. Severe pain attacked my abdomen as I hunched over in sticky sweat. Anissa and her parents tried to mask the concern on their faces by keeping my spirits up. Don't worry, they said. You'll be fine on the rest of your travels. Just pay attention to your surroundings. But I did not share their faith in my abilities. I was woefully distracted, and my mind was in a thick cloud of fog. I failed at strengthening my body with food, but I kept onward alongside my companions. We stopped at an indoor walking mall akin to a large flea market, a whirlwind of wild color movement and boisterous activity bombarded my space and wearied my already debilitating condition. Cunning salesmen, like ambushing pirates, jumped out from around every corner, haggling and harassing every passerby. When a perspiring vendor practically stomped over my feet with his sales pitch for his Indian shawls, dizziness took hold and Anissa grabbed my arm, whispering, Stay close and don't fall down. We are leaving soon. I was weary and confused. Help me, God. Please let this one pass. I prayed. The family set me up with their trusty taxi driver, whom they highly recommended, Amit, and they told him to take good care of me. Rather feebly, I entered the windowless vehicle and turned my anxious face to Anissa, who offered me a strong hug. You'll be okay, I know it, but she could not know for sure. I took a deep breath of courage and said goodbye to my friend as I grabbed her hand with a squeeze. Bye, Anissa. I'm so happy I met you. Thank you for everything. And as we rode away, I waved and waved until I could no longer see her. You need it nice or cheap? asked Amit as he pulled into the flow of chaotic traffic. Any luck I had up until now was diminishing quickly, as was my cash, so I needed the cheapest lodging I could find. Please, cheap, cheap, but out of danger, I told him. I know the place, but it will take some time to get to. The 30 minutes of travel along bumpy roads didn't help my nausea, and foul sweat dripped from my clammy skin. The smoke exhaust-filled auto rickshaw barely held itself together with a few nuts and bolts. We finally arrived at the motel that Amit promised would be a good fit, But inside the stink-filled lobby were disheveled, crude-looking men lined up in a circle at the front desk with stares of craving pasted on their faces. After dropping my bags, Amit was in a hurry to leave. I am sending you another cab driver for tomorrow, first thing in the morning. And then he drove off onto an Indian road into the unknown distance, and I was left alone with my sick self and a shadow of hope that things would somehow work out. I grabbed a business card from the front desk that read, For That Super Homely Feeling. 
The typo meant homey, and yet the unintended error was fitting. The hotel desk clerk seemed a seedy character but friendly enough as he ushered me to a modest room with a thin mattress cot for a bed on which I unloaded my cumbersome baggage. Enjoy, he said. Thank you, I uttered with defeat. I quickly locked the door behind me. Tears ran down my cheeks, and I watched them in slow motion hit my fanny pack at my waist. It seemed as though days had passed, but it was only a few hours earlier when I still felt at ease in the Nayar's home. I noticed the designated area for the Indian squat and crap routine. In the corner of the room was a three-by-three-foot concrete floor with two buckets, one filled with bathing water and the other one empty for a wash basin. Then, so suddenly, an acute sharpness moved through my intestines and a bubbling sensation exploded within. Like a taunted bull, I stomped across the concrete, yanked down my shorts, and let go with a holy force. As my insides flew out of me, so did my excitement over this trip, my hope for health and getting home sane, my love for adventure. At the same time, my esophagus filled with a putrid bile. Out through my mouth, along with the vomit, went my dreams of being a world traveler, and so much regret— about my impulsivity, my attitude problem, my naivete. There was just too much at once. I had no strength left. No, 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 this can't be. This is a nightmare. No, God, please let it not be true. I excreted and purged continuously into the hole in the concrete ground, taking turns between the two expulsions, futilely cleaning between messes with a cotton T-shirt. And the mess wouldn't stop. My tears fell more quickly now, but no sobs. I needed my strength. My heart beat rapidly with a sharp ache as increasing panic overtook me. This can't be happening. No, no, none of this is happening. My mind frantically searched for some sense to make of this disaster. Just then, a disturbing noise echoed in the hallway outside my room door, sounding like a person howling in pain. What could these cries possibly be the result of? Hunger? And why were people loitering the hallways? And then suddenly I received a knock on the door. Towels, called the visitor. Yes, I needed the towels to keep the place clean. But as I opened the door, the swarthy front desk clerk extended the towels to me slowly with a smirk across his face. And as I tried to pull them away from his grip, he did not release them. Do you need anything else, sweet one? He asked in that slimy tone men reserve only for hookers, as he motioned his weight forward into my body, trying to push through the doorway. No, no, thank you. I roughly pulled the towels from his extended hand and held the door in place with a steady, strong foothold. Are you sure? He tried, pushing further. With a force from inside my gut, I pushed him into the opposing wall of the corridor and roared, No, thank you! I slammed the door shut. Thank God it had a lock. And now, with no posturing left, I collapsed in cries onto the bedcot, adding to the wails of anguish from the hallway. I was in the middle of nowhere, becoming increasingly dehydrated, Now I was fearful of rape. I wasn't even sure I had a driver to pick me up in the morning. 
In between my excretions, I obsessively focused on cleaning, and without the saving catch of a toilet bowl, it was an ugly, humiliating sight. Hide the evidence. Oh my God, what a fucking mess. Clean it up. Don't stop cleaning. Make it neat. You can do this. You can make it out of here. On the cracked wall, the stucco was peeling. There hung a picture of a spiritual guru with a long white beard and a halo around his head. An advanced soul that had reached self-actualization. So many people claimed this in India that one could easily believe a special mystical power blessed the air here. And yet, sitting here looking at this framed so-called holy man on the peeling wall only left an emptiness in my heart and in no way provided me with spiritual relief. Then the floods crashed in once again. Please make it stop. Please save me from this. No, no, not again. Can I rest for a few minutes? Make it stop. Into the late hours of the night, between fits of agonizing expulsions, the tapes continued rolling inside my mind. Okay, okay, okay. You can do this. Don't show any evidence. Hide it. Hide it. It's disgusting. Nobody knows. It never happened. Roscoe and my scientist friends from the museum all tried to school me about the dangers of the debilitating outcome of traveler's diarrhea. I remember how the Nayaras had mentioned that I could die from it in India, and how I had taken everyone's warnings lightly. I screamed in a broken-hearted cry, Fucking shit! Nothing is fucking working out! I'm such a failure! And that was that. That was the end of my trip and the end of my anger. I was going to go home with nothing to show for my efforts, with only a story of betrayal and of sickness, a very uninspiring journey for all to roll their judging eyes at. That is, if I did return home. I remembered when I was at JFK Airport in New York. As I walked away from my parents to enter the boarding area, I turned to see the sad and distant goodbye on my mother's frightened face. She thought she might never see me again. She looked so pathetically helpless, letting me fly off with my naivete. I missed my mother so much in India, and when that mean Brahmin mom screamed at me with such ferocity, it pushed me inside my imagination, propelling me to touch my own mother ever so softly on the face. In that perfect, eternal moment, I was able to go back to America and tenderly ease my mother's worry. With quiet surrender, I patiently held vigil, hoping for some answers to arrive at daybreak. In between fits of expulsion, in sobering quietude, I recited the mantra over and over again to ease my anxiety. I wait patiently until dawn. I wait patiently until dawn. With a heavy black void in my heart, I sat in an unknown region of foreign territory, distrusting everyone, and most of all, my own body and mind, and was unable to analyze my next best course of action. I walked across the tiny room to a small, dirty mirror hanging on the wall and took a long, honest look at myself. I didn't know who I was anymore. My ego was vanishing before my eyes. I could not perceive a gen in the image before me. I was only a spirit 
in a body sack of skin and skeleton, a bodily form of energy with two eyes that were vessels into a vast soul energy complex. I was part of the more, the collective one, but I was nothing special or separate. My interests, talents, achievements, and everything else that made up who I thought I was were not real because I didn't really exist. I was just a personality energy that wanted to be maintained, and if I did not succeed in that, I simply would no longer be maintained. Out the window went the Gen Gata identity into blankness forever. All the labels that my ego identified itself with, the artist, the liberal, the black sheep, the actress, the funny one, all of these ideas of myself disintegrated into the ethereal air. None of that mattered anymore. The illusion of it was paradoxically sublime. It was what the minds of my fellow starving untouchables must succumb to in order to survive. The feeling that they were nothing but an aura, nothing much at all, nothing but a subtle spirit of the vast one energy, and nothing in the eyes of everyone else, chained like slaves to this nothing existence forever, until their karma released them from their sins. I realized that if I had given into this reality of seeing myself indeed as nothing, at least then I would have recognized what I saw in the mirror. Before the sun came up, I spent the time engaged in a packing ritual, which now seemed to be the one thing that could focus my mind on something other than the pain. Along my travels, I had bought decorative trinkets and beautiful material items, a hand-woven tapestry from a local artisan, some crafty ornamental tchotchkes, and colorful, bold scarves. Okay, you can do this, Jen. A guiding voice encouraged me. Organize everything you need. Who will you give these presents to when you return home? I sorted out all my various luggage items and organized them in piles that made sense. I arranged and rearranged my belongings again and again. The obsessive ritual soothed me because it kept my mind on the hope that I was packing to go home. But would I end up home? It's okay, Jen. Okay, okay, you can do this. It's okay. But my grieving continued as I knew it wasn't okay. I was betrayed by a friend and as a result found myself in a life-threatening situation how could I have possibly deserved this? With the rise of dawn, I gathered my mountain of belongings, which now contained the weight of excess, undisciplined American consumption and greed, and went downstairs to meet my next cabbie, whom Amit assured me would arrive at 6 a.m. With the fiercest New York City attitude I could muster, I walked into the lobby, lurking with the predatory bastards from the night before, paid the bill, sat tight in the corner, and went over an alternative plan if this cabbie did not show up. In the days before cell phones, what were my options? Relying on the advice of this man behind the counter who had tried to attack me in my room just hours ago? looking through an incomprehensible motel phone book? Just then, a small man with a mop of shaggy black hair walked through the door. He had a skip in a step as if he had important business to attend to. 
He saw me and said with urgency, Jennifer, I am Mahandir Singh. I am here for you. My swollen, reddened eyes locked with his. They had so kind a twinkle, and in their gentleness I saw the eyes of Christ, ready to save me now, possessing a depth of such compassion and commitment to help me that if Ahmed had not kept his promise, he was undoubtedly an angel sent from heaven. Finally, I was in safe hands and could trust someone again. With a slow exhale, my screaming anxiety began to calm. And with a firm decision, I ended my holiday in India and focused all my attention on getting back home to New York as soon as possible. End of chapter five. Thanks for listening to Not As Crazy As You Think, and don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And remember, mental health is attainable for anyone, especially those labeled with mental illness. Until next time, peace out.